0: chapter 5 buddhist ruins go to me the qualities of which you may know these qualities lead to passion not to dispassion to being fettered not to being unfettered to accumulating not to shedding to self-aggrandizement not to modesty to discontent not to contentment, to entanglement, not to seclusion, to laziness, not to aroused persistence, to being burdensome, not to being unburdensome. You may categorically hold, this is not the Tama, this is not the Huinaya. this is not the teacher's instruction. Eight point five three. A useful litmus test I have discovered, similar to the one given by the Buddha himself in the immediately preceding epigraph, for determining whether a particular teaching or practice, Western or otherwise, has anything at all to do with what the Buddha taught, is to simply look for whether or not the values of Renunciation, celibacy, austerity, seclusion, or sense restraint are discussed even a single time. I believe such a discriminatory tool can be so useful to the prospective disciple of the Buddha that we might dub it with an official title, the Dhamma Domestication Detector, if you take such a tool into most Western retreat centers or almost any sufficiently large and well-funded Buddhist temple or monastery in Asia, you will invariably hear all the alarm bells blaring at full blast. As Piku Sujato, a prolific translator of the Pali canon and preeminent scholar of early Buddhism. Put it when referring to that most populous stronghold of the Theravada Buddhist sect, there's a lot of Buddhism in Thailand, but not a lot of Tama. Such a phenomenon is not recent. It only took 500 years after the death of the Buddha for the Tama to be thoroughly domesticated. Everywhere it has traveled, Buddhism has undergone the same process again and again of being slowly declawed and integrated into the surrounding culture, continually corrupted from within and without, until some particular form of expression attained harmony with its surroundings and then simply faithfully replicated itself generation after generation for hundreds of years. Every form that has successfully replicated in this manner has necessarily been a significant departure from the originary ideal of solitary monks striving for awakening alone in the forest. Time and time again, the city monks start to outnumber the forest monks until solitary practice becomes rare and scholasticism becomes the dominant form until That, too, is partially abandoned for ritualized devotional practices, astrology, and traditional medicine. The Buddha inevitably becomes a franchise. But is this really any wonder? The radical lifestyle ideal described in the earliest Buddhist texts could never have mass appeal. For Buddhism to become a religion at all, It was necessarily going to need to be adapted to the needs of the many, the many who have little if any urge or inclination to resolve the fundamental problems of existence in any final or lasting way. The average historical Chinese rice farmer was far more interested in being protected from spirits and being provided with an auspicious day for planting his crop than anything the authentic Buddha may have had to offer him. Though the Buddha explicitly forbade many of them, such practices and many other superstitions were inevitably going to penetrate into the Buddha's dispensation. I do not want to portray these kinds of cultural expressions as fake Buddhism. In fact, domesticated Buddhism has been the dominant form that Buddhism has taken throughout its history. The problem is that this particular popular religious form is, at a practical existential level, almost indistinguishable from any other. There is much to be said about the kind of large-scale cultural and political impacts that different religions can have on the populations that live under their sway. I do not mean to equate any religion with any other on this macro level. There are indeed significant differences between the Christian, Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist worlds that stem directly from the popular religious beliefs that are held sacred by each of those civilizational projects. What I mean to say is that, for the average person, changing from one set of religious beliefs to another is likely not going to have a significant impact on his or her lifestyle. There are lazy, unvirtuous Muslims and lazy, unvirtuous Buddhists, as well as very devout altruistic Muslims and devout altruistic Buddhists. No religion has a monopoly on mundane goodness, but mundane goodness is not what we're interested in here. No popular religious form is going to encourage and facilitate the kind of burning existential angst and anxiety and subsequent radical internal transformation that is necessary to address and resolve nihilism and dukkha in the here and now. Nor, might I remind the reader, do secular forms offer us any greater hope. The contemporary project of secular Buddhism has invariably been just one more example of the Buddhist domestication process at work. And that's fine as far as it goes. It has simply proved insufficient for my purposes and, I think, for anyone whose purpose is to truly go beyond common happiness. If you want to better cope with life in a crazy world, then yeah, you can do some yoga followed by a bit of loving-kindness meditation. Those things will make you more calm for a little while, but if we're being honest with ourselves, a Xanax or a heavy strain of indica would probably be a lot more effective. Again, I'm not encouraging drug use, but the point needs to be made that anything less than a total rejection of sensuality is not ultimately going to amount to anything more than coping with our existential condition as opposed to totally overcoming it. In addition to the great wandering on, samsara could also accurately be translated as the big cope. I would, frankly, prefer not to even have to write this chapter. I am indebted to secular Buddhism for providing me a palatable inroad to the Tama, though through such a journey I later rejected it. I have also come to a deep appreciation of a wide variety of Asian cultures through my study of Buddhism. There is a great deal of conventional happiness, peace of mind, and dignity of character to be found in traditional Buddhist practices. I have seen the positive impact they have on people with my own eyes, an impact that does not require them to shave their heads, become celibate, and contemplate their impending death alone in the woods all day. I do not want to engage in the polemics of calling all of my own religions, cherished traditions, a bunch of uneducated, decadent, fundamentalist coping mechanisms that are distortions of the Buddha's teaching distortions that could have been easily recognized as such if anyone had even bothered to actually read their own scriptures with a critical eye, rather than waiting for Westerners like Bhikkhu Sujato and Bhikkhu to come and dedicate their lives to doing the kind of rigorous scholarship and analysis that should have been done a hundred years ago. But I digress. I would like to not have to write this chapter. But because I have only very recently had to go through the laborious process of penetrating into the Buddhist ruins myself, a process of education and research that is perpetually ongoing, I sympathize with the position that I leave any of those whom all my previous words have successfully converted into being Buddha-curious. It is the case that through simply living according to the gradual training and committing to the process of mindfulness, integrity, self-scrutiny, and effacement that has already been described and can be further explored in the suttas, the sufficiently desperate and ardent person could completely eradicate suffering or at least come quite close to doing so. Such a person would, at the very least, certainly overcome nihilism within no more than a few years at most. My case has already been made, and any further need for justification likely only comes from a place of terror at the prospect of sitting alone by yourself with nothing to do but be with your own mind for months on end. Such a terror is quite normal. I understand that the sufficiently evangelized reader will no doubt want to do a bit more research before committing any significant portion of their life to celibacy of both a physical and psychological variety. To that end, I wanted to write this chapter to address some of the most common trends of Tama domestication that I have identified commonly operating trans-historically and trans-geographically. This will inevitably involve either implicitly or explicitly criticizing most of what Buddhism is and has been, East and West, ancient and contemporary. I will endeavor to keep the criticism primarily implicit, both out of politeness and out of the recognition that This problem isn't a particular problem of a particular culture. There's no one to blame for this process because it keeps happening everywhere. This is human nature at work. And for most, a domesticated tama is exactly the form that meets their personal needs. Domesticated does not need to be a pejorative, though I understand this has not so far been the impression. Domestication provides stability and broad access, conditions that can serve as a breeding ground for the countervailing force of renunciation. There is a less powerful, less common, but equally pervasive recurring trend within Buddhism of small groups of monastics who retreat from the large monasteries with royal endowments back to the mountains and the forests to attempt to realize the truth of the Buddhist teaching for themselves. Alan Robert Lopez has identified Chan-slash-Zen Buddhism and the Thai forest tradition as the two most famous examples of such homegrown Asian Buddhist revivalist movements. It is my hope that the continuing research of early Buddhist studies will provide the resources for such movements to recur with even greater frequency in any time and in any place across the world well into the future. The early texts and the lifestyle they promote are simply incompatible with domestication of any kind, so cannot ever be divorced from their core existential value, which I have attempted to elucidate. It is precisely the degradation of existential immediacy and the urgency of some guéga that constitutes domestication as a serious problem. If there is any force that has been more historically effective at theologically neutralizing the urge towards taking radical measures to resolve the problem of being, it is the perennial gravitational pull Exerted on the Tama by Brahmanism. Vedic Brahmanism can very clearly be seen throughout the Pali Canon as the dominant Indian cultural milieu that the Buddha's teaching was necessarily in response to. The practices and beliefs of the Brahmins were frequently held up to criticism in the Pali scriptures, but it is not any specific ritualism described in the Vedas that. Concern us here. What concerns us is rather the metaphysical entity called Praman that more fully developed in the early Upanishads and continues to serve as the foundational metaphysical construct within Hinduism to this day. Brahmanical monism has, unfortunately, been an idea that has consistently and usually successfully penetrated into the framing an interpretation of buddhist ideas and practices whether it is interpreted in a monistic or pantheistic way holding oneself to be an emanation of the divine ground of reality is one of the oldest most subtle and deeply pernicious of spiritual conceits a conceit that most famously slithered its way back into buddhism through the Mahayana Buddha Nature Doctrine, previously mentioned in Chapter 3. Perennial philosophy is another instantiation of this idea in which Aldous Huxley attempted to reconcile all the monistic tendencies found in the reported experiences of mystics around the world into a singular perennial truth, describing that truth as the metaphysic that recognizes a divine reality substantial to the world of things and lives and minds, the psychology that finds in the soul something similar to, or even identical to, divine reality, the ethic that places man's final end in the knowledge of the imminent and transcendent ground of all being, the thing is immemorial and universal. Rudiments of the perennial philosophy may be found among the traditional lore of primitive peoples in every region of the world, and in its fully developed forms, it has a place in every one of the higher religions. Though it may often be shrouded in the appearance of unity, humility, and universal compassion, the idea of all existence being Ontologically unified under and equivalent to some kind of singular divine ground is problematic on a variety of fronts. The first is that, insofar as such a claim is not utterly trivial, it is actually quite nihilistic. Scientific materialism could easily be held up as a prime example of a perennial philosophy but somehow people don't seem to feel so comforted considering themselves equivalent to a soup of subatomic particles as they do in thinking themselves as an emanation of the Godhead. The only difference here between nihilistic physicalism and pramonical monism is a romantic twinkling of the eye a simple difference in emotional interpretation of the phrase, we're all stardust. The ethical nihilism contained in such a view is epitomized in Krishna's instruction in the Bhagavad Gita to the reluctant Arjuna, urging Arjuna to go to war and fight, though many will die, for it is the duty of a warrior to fight and kill as their manifestation of the eternal, and fundamental pattern. The nonsense of monism and perennialist romanticism lies in the fact that even if Arjuna chose not to fight, that decision would also still ultimately be an emanation of Brahman. The mystical vision I have regarding my place in the universe one day may be completely different from another such vision I have next week which forces me to totally reformulate my sense of telos within the universal whole with which I identify. And that process of ethical churning can and will go on indefinitely, potentially obtaining no consistency whatsoever. Just throwing your hands up in the air and saying all my cultural conditioning tells me that I am a certain thing and so I have a duty to act in certain ways and I currently emotionally feel like that sense of duty is also valid at a cosmological level, is not actually saying anything ethically meaningful at all, holding that all the seers and sages of world history have been communing with the same world soul touching different parts of the same elephant such that they all have their own particular limited access to the same fundamental truth, is functionally equivalent to nihilism. At best, it is a facile substitute for organized religion, utterly beholden to the whims of the emotions and the charisma of the mystic. It is my suspicion a suspicion that I imagine 20th century political activist and member of the untouchable caste B.R. Bedkar would fervently agree with that following one's dharmic life purpose as an emanation of Brahman most often simply serves as a metaphysical tool to justify resigning oneself to enact the social role that one is born into with as little critical reflection or existential discomfort as possible. To domesticate oneself. Ambedkar spent his life fighting against the macro-level impacts such an attitude has on Hindu society, and it is obviously also utterly crippling to the self-critical inquiry so essential to the Buddhist path beyond substantiating the perpetuation of oppressive social structures, as well as personal heedlessness and existential apathy, monism further destroys the division between the sacred and profane and necessitates the monist to follow Leibniz into the highly dubious assertion that, being ultimately equivalent to the divine principle we must be living in the best of all possible worlds. I suppose by now it goes without saying that indefinitely going along with Brahman's meaningless, macabre charade and tying oneself to a world where suffering abounds is, perhaps, in our opinion, not the wisest of decisions. In his Definitive work on the most recently monistically tainted development of Buddhism he calls Buddhist romanticism. Tanisaro Piku writes by fostering an imminent rather than transcendent solution to suffering, Buddhist romanticism encourages people to stay within the web of interdependencies that are causing them to suffer, to accept the vagaries. Of an interdependent interconnected world and to define their desire for well-being totally within those vagaries we have already explored how the sense of self and suffering are joined at the hip and this exposes another fault of monistic religious doctrines if they are not nihilistic trivial or mechanisms in service of bad faith Metaphysical monisms encourage a subtle level of conceit. They are theories of self and inevitably form at least a subtle source of craving and suffering. Even when held within the heart of an otherwise deeply humble and ascetic individual, thoughts effectively equivalent to I am God can only spell trouble. It is only a matter of severity whether that trouble remains entirely within the mind of the sage or spills out into the actions that others might take on their guru's behalf. This leads us to the most common corollary and practical expression of Brahmanism's world-friendly trajectory and influence, which is what I will here refer to as the altruism trap. I will admit that I have always had a relatively heartless disposition. One does not become a nihilist through an overabundance of empathy. But I do not want to be mistaken here. Altruism, giving, and compassion are always good things. They're good things to do and to be, even for otherwise selfish people, as discussed in Chapter 3. The open hearted kindness, generosity, and forgiving nature promoted and cultivated within cultures of dana is perhaps the greatest strength of Hinduism, Sikhism, and conventional Buddhism. For those intent on simply living a basically good life, dana combined with a baseline level of sila is, without a doubt, the supreme vehicle for realizing such an aspiration. But, in the pursuit of an even higher good, in pursuit of the resolution of nihilism, existential anxiety, and suffering itself, altruism must be approached from a correspondingly higher perspective. Just as the concrete material damage we do to others through our unskillful actions is paltry in comparison to the long-term ramifications such actions have on our future states of mind and behavior, the mundane good that we may do for others out of charity and goodwill has a highly limited and often uncertain scope. We cannot ultimately know how our generosity will impact the world, how significant or long-lasting the benefits will be or, indeed, if our good intentions will be beneficial at all. Even if we experience that ultimate misfortune of bringing the world a little closer to hell through our good intentions, the positive impact those good intentions had on our own mind was precisely that which was never in doubt. Within all the uncertainty and limitations on our attempts to benefit the external world, it is important to recognize that the impact our actions have on our own mind and our own suffering is always that one aspect that is both completely within our control and utterly predictable. Not recognizing this is essentially what constitutes the altruism trap. Through perpetually trying to help and save a world that in its very structure and nature does not want to be helped or saved, we can end up wasting a lot of time cleaning up a house that is just going to get dirty again, while simultaneously soiling ourselves. Though the foolish are factually in the most need of help, they are also the population of people least capable of benefiting from whatever aid they may receive. To criticize a metaphor that I once heard a Vajrayana Buddhist teacher employ, thinking oneself a peacock capable of digesting the poison of the world without being harmed and indeed using such poison only to sprout beautiful plumage is a deeply naive idealization. This ignores the immediate dynamics of our social environment and our complicity in sullying ourselves in it. Our environments inevitably do have a direct and immediate impact on our behavior, thoughts, and attitudes. Wisdom is not to be found in the company of fools, and the reality of helping other people is often far more akin to feeding a wild, snapping animal than anything else, because that's precisely the bestial state of nature that constitutes tangha. The kinds of things people do with lottery money, and the common disastrous fates such winners usually eventually end up bringing upon themselves, is all the evidence you might need that most people are hopeless cases regardless of their particular material conditions. And heaven help you trying to teach such people about contentment. In defining one of the pillars of the Noble Eightfold Path, right action, the Buddha focused entirely on not doing certain things rather than prescribing certain actions. And what, monks, is right action? Abstaining from taking life, abstaining from stealing, abstaining from sexual intercourse, this monk's is called right action. In abstaining from actions that harm ourselves and others, we are actually still acting in an altruistic way, giving others the gift of protection from the harm that we might otherwise do them now and on into the future while giving ourselves the highest gift possible, the gift of virtue, composure, and contentment. In terms of effective altruism, ascetic restraint and the ensuing eradication of the very roots of suffering does far more long-term good than perpetually putting band-aids on the downstream results of those root causes. I believe that this is probably the gist of what Ajahn Chah meant when he said, Abandoning the unwholesome, it's more important than doing good. Doing conventional good can only ever have conventionally good results, and, in the end, the suffering of others is a philosophically murky realm of conjecture that inevitably has far more to do with our own feelings about that projected suffering than anything else. The only absolutely certain suffering in the world is that which is felt right here. And luckily, that most indubitable suffering is also that which we have the most direct and impactful control over. So, by all means, Be altruistic, but remain vigilant that you are not using your notions of external responsibility to avoid doing that uncomfortable work awaiting you within your own mind. Metaphysical doctrines of equivalence between the self and world, which must manifest phenomenologically in the dukkha of the self world, and an emphasis on doing Every good imaginable in the world, besides that most difficult task of finally uprooting the world, have been some of the oldest and deepest expressions of domesticated Tama throughout time and space. The only forms even more common are the myriad ways that the triple jam, the Buddha, the Tama, and the Sankha, has been made into a fetish, an idol to be worshipped as a form of ritual purification and magical protection. But at that point, we're just talking about a universal aspect of human religious behavior writ large. Whether or not the triple gem is involved is only incidental. All these ideas, habits, and Attitudes have been developed and maintained for millennia, and will no doubt continue to hold sway in the minds of adherents and enthusiasts of Eastern spirituality around the world into the indefinite future, and I will continue to be at pains to emphasize that that is all very well and good if that's what you're after, but don't mistake it for practicing the Tama. What are not so well and good are some of the newer additions to the Buddhist ruins that solely serve to distort and confuse, without offering anything of remedial value in return. Materialist justifications and interpretations of the Tama are perhaps the most obvious offenders here in the world of Buddhist modernism. So, let me be very, very clear. The Tama has absolutely nothing to do with neuroscience. The ontological assumptions and ultimate goals of neuroscience and positive psychology are completely at odds with the world-renouncing conception of happiness put forward by the Buddha. Wisdom is not something that can ever be quantified or understood through a microscope. Attempting to pin down eudaimonia through brain scans or psychometric indices will never resolve the very suffering and craving that motivates that scientific enterprise to begin with. Looking for some kind of therapeutic intervention or literal happy pill to solve dukkha is the epitome of bad faith. Your problems are not out there in your brain. But people don't want to hear that. They'll run around to the ends of the earth searching for the perfect study to put before a peer review panel so they can sleep soundly in the security that a bunch of other oozing mammals rubber-stamped their idea of happiness before they'll allow themselves to actually witness their own mind and the terrifying, lonely vulnerability of their existential situation. Physicalist medical hermeneutics can also have a devastating impact on Buddhist training when, combined with the myriad meditative concentration exercises, positive emotion cultivations, and insight techniques on offer in today's burgeoning meditation marketplace, we have already once mentioned Mirlo Panti's criticism of the notion of sensation as a pure, inscrutable, dot-like impression. Mirlo Panti really comes out of the gate swinging at this idea, from the very first sentence of his Phenomenology of Perception, writing that we utterly misapprehend perception when we treat it as an incommunicable impression, because such impressions always come bundled with the richness of gestalt, context, and communicable meaning. I reiterate Marlou Ponty's criticism here because I very much agree with the focus and intensity of his attack. For it is an attack that is directly applicable to the conceptual framing of a great many meditation exercises being taught out in the wild. There are some people that believe that the purpose of meditation is to catch every fleeting sensation in their body as if they were some kind of human oscilloscope, perceiving the pure electromagnetic fluctuations in their nervous system with millisecond precision. Such people are utterly deluded and have entirely misapprehended the reality of their own experience. There is no such thing as a pure isolated vibration of experience with a precise beginning, middle, and end. To conceive experience as such means that you are necessarily ignoring the mind, the existential realm of context, intuition, understanding, and authentic temporality as described by Heidegger as well as the transcendent nothingness of Sartre. In doing so, you will have thus entirely closed yourself off from any understanding of Dasein as it actually is. Read the suttas, read the phenomenologists, and don't fall into this trap. As for the topic of meditation in general, I would simply advise caution and resolute skepticism in a critique of western buddhism glenn wallace thoroughly points out all the ways that meditation is currently being co-opted to serve as zizek's perfect ideological supplement to late-stage capitalism to summarize his critique of this particular issue putting the point very bluntly If a set of meditative tools and techniques are being embraced by Google and the World Economic Forum, that should be an indication that there is probably nothing of any contemplative value in them at all. Living a conscientious life that gradually builds an unshakable foundation of sila while moving towards minimizing Trivial engagements, conflicts, and distractions in favor of broad wholesomeness, generosity, simplicity, reflection, and ease is going to do a lot more for you than 20 minutes of breath meditation a day. Consider instead simply spending those 20 minutes thinking about how to cultivate a greater level of contentment and generosity in your life and attempting to recollect any lapses in virtue, strategizing and resolving towards not repeating them, or simply basking in the composure that your unbroken virtue has built for you. To further undermine ubiquitous assumptions about Buddhist meditation, it may surprise the reader to learn that Many Buddhist traditions lifted their corpus of meditation techniques directly out of the Upanishads, the Yoga Sutras, and Qigong exercise traditions. The situation is perhaps the worst in the ostensibly conservative Theravada Buddhist sect. As Grzegorz Polak points out in Reexamining Jhana, the Theravada meditation tradition had all but completely died out prior to the 19th century and was only revived through referencing dubious millennia-old meditation manuals like the Vasudhi Magha and combining the techniques found within with still extant yogic concentration exercises. If you look at the earliest texts, Instructions to concentrate on a single point in the body or to even really concentrate anywhere in particular at all are completely absent. Rather than taking the form of intensive yogic concentration resulting in deep states of almost total sensory deprivation beyond the singular object of focus, early Buddhist meditation usually seems to be described in a form much closer to the more European conception of meditation that the word originally connoted, contemplation and reflection, but with a layer of classic Buddhist mindfulness at the bottom. And this does have some sense to it, Just like you wouldn't be able to learn about how an engine works by simply staring at one of its pistons for hours on end, you will not come to an understanding of the mind by repeatedly, mindlessly attending to a particular physical sensation. You will come to an understanding of the mind by, surprise, surprise, trying to understand it. Beyond the Theravada, the meditation traditions found in Vajrayana Buddhism as well as Chan slash Zen are older, more diverse, and more open about their extra-Buddhist influences. Zen techniques in particular are, in their sometimes inscrutable simplicity and emphasis on broad, open awareness, perhaps most aligned with what the Buddha may have had in mind out of all the traditional Asian lineages, Chan is, after all, the oldest and most vibrant continuous Buddhist meditation tradition in the world. Of course, we will never as a collective definitively know anything for certain about what the historical Buddha did or did not teach, though scholars like Karen Arbel Alexander Wynne, Tilman Vetter, and the other early Buddhist scholars previously mentioned have all contributed to deepening our understanding of early Buddhist meditation. Given the atmosphere of ongoing research and debate that permeates this topic, it would be foolish to express an early Buddhist fundamentalist viewpoint here for there truly is no such absolutely coherent or unassailable perspective. Through exposing the history of Buddhist meditation, I only wish to promote an attitude of free inquiry, open-mindedness, and healthy skepticism regarding the topic of meditation. If you disagree with my dismissal of yogic praxis and Would really like to explore some fixed attention, single pointed concentration exercises. That is your prerogative. I can only reiterate that the dimension of the mind is not going to be found in the shimmering flux of your breath. It will be found in the always simultaneously present phenomenological context and constitutive ontological basis. For the very capacity to be conscious of the body in the first place. Regardless, Thanissaro Piku has called the Tama holographic, in that each individual element of the teaching contains within it a compressed view of the whole. I am confident that anyone who successfully works her way through the first six or seven steps of the gradual training would be able, with enough self-transparency, self-questioning, intensive research, and rigorous experimentation, to finish the jigsaw puzzle on her own without needing the Buddha himself to hold her hand. So, meditation has been co-opted by capitalism to suit its own needs, and Buddhist meditation is itself of complex origins, but these are really only background issues. The main issue with meditation is the common tendency that I already mentioned in chapter 3, that it is often taken to be the totality of Buddhist practice, with everything else being preparatory or supplemental. This attitude is perhaps the most subtle and ingenious version of Tama domestication that has ever been devised. In being transformed into a daily routine of mental exercises, the Tama is neutered into a form of mental hygiene like a toothbrush for the mind. But, as with physical health, the ignored reality here is that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and, to extend the oral analogy, it's much more important to stop drinking the sugary beverages that are rotting your teeth at the roots than perpetually working on perfecting your brushing form. It is a travesty and a scandal that the absolutely central topic of sensuality and its dangers is so totally ignored in so much of popular Buddhist discourse. I roar my lion's roar and take a categorical stand on this point. There is no authentically Buddhist meditation outside of the abandonment of sensuality. Breathing your way to enlightenment only works when every other part of your lifestyle is supportive of composure and letting go. Effacement is not a technique. It's a commitment. If nihilism and dukkha are things you are truly interested in overcoming, the temptation to turn the putta into an empty aphorism printed on a magnet slapped on the corner of the refrigerator door that is your life, must be refused. Question all assumptions that lead to complacency or dependency, both within and without. It is imperative that you allow the wilderness of existential angst and personal responsibility to penetrate the pasture of your life, to whatever extent your chosen lifestyle will support, do not let yourself be fully domesticated by samsara, for a bovine existence only ends in the slaughterhouse. But remember that you can only rage against the machine of the world by obliterating your very capacity for rage. In so doing, you will through effort, inevitably come to a confirmed confidence in the Tama, knowing for yourself that this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace.